Salam, Azul, bonjour, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ad Hamazia, member of the Society for Algerian Studies. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's launch of the fantastic new book, The Algerian War, The Algerian Revolution, written and authored by Dr. Natalia Vince, you may be able to see on your screens. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan. I'll be your moderator for today. The Zoom launch event is being hosted by, as you are well aware, our LSE Middle East Center academic ally friends, and is indeed co-organized with us at the Society for Algerian Studies. The running order for today, some brief house rules and a very brief intro from me. We'll then dive in and have our wonderful speaker and author, Dr. Natalia Vince, give us an overview of the book in say 15 to 20 minutes. I may then or may not use the moderator's privilege to ask a couple of questions before opening for Q&A discussion with you, the audience. Sound like a plan? Yes, good, great, fantastic. I can see more and more people joining. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screens for those on Zoom, um, not the chat box. So not the chat box Q&A and feel free to share your name and affiliation. Please do submit throughout the webinar. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. What I mean by that is no essays, please. I won't be reading our essays, questions, not essays. Uh, I also note that this event will be recorded and will also be live streamed on Facebook. If you'd like to tweet about the event, marhaba, bienvenue, you can use the hashtag LSE Algeria. Um, I must say that I very much highly recommend that you go out and buy the book or stay in and buy online. It's available from all good booksellers. And on top of that, we have a special offer uh, today. Um, if you'd like to receive 20% off the print book or ebook, um, You'll be, you'll, you can follow the link which will be submitted in the chat box and it's just been submitted in the chat box. So 20% off for today. We'll also be giving, we'll also be giving a complimentary copy uh, for one of you in the audience today who answers a fun quiz question that I dreamt up last night and this morning. Um, and we'll be asking that question shortly after Natalia's overview. Um, so whoever's the fastest to respond, uh, fastest and smartest, uh, we'll, uh, we'll receive a complimentary copy um, with uh, compliments from the Society of Algeria. Now, before introducing our speaker between friends and, and don't tell our speaker, hopefully she can't hear, but um, I have to be honest, when I first heard that there was yet another book uh, on the Algerian Revolu Revolution, I was not, not particularly enthused, excited, but with a capital B, once I read Natalia's book, albeit slowly, handicapped by my uh, long COVID and my brain fog, uh, I thought, well, brilliant, succinct, it links past the present. In short, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the book. Uh, it's a must have for anybody looking at or interested in Algeria, histories of decolonization, et cetera, et cetera. The book is, is particularly excellent at doing what it sets out to do in terms of deciphering partisanship, to use Natalia's words, um, overcoming false information and fake news, confronting the cacophony, there you go, alliteration, and excess of information, Natalia's words, um, as well as identifying what's described as a sort of a hierarchy of arguments, locating source biases, etc. So the book vividly uh, provides a sort of overview on these central approaches and debates about the events of the war. And we have synonyms for the war that could go on and on beyond the Algerian war, the Algerian revolution. Specifically, it focuses on, on how some of the debates around the war uh, have been revisited in more contemporary scholarship, which I think is super interesting and also how debates about the past are tied to the present day concerns and issues, think uh, 2019 onwards. And for the Algerian observers and uh, aficionado, just recently think uh, Maurice Audin in recent years, uh, Ali Boumangel, uh, the repatriation of skulls, Benjamin Stora's report. And uh, for those who think that's all gibberish, I'm sure we'll break it down later on. So this super interesting book is compiled in four very neat, tidy, um, succinct, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for, accessible chapters, and a special shout out to uh, the last chapter, if I may, uh, on the legacies of the war, 1962 to 2020. Uh, I'll stop speaking now and intro our speaker, but just so you are not only taking my word for it, um, uh, you have, uh, who was it? I, I, wrote, I wrote this down. Yes, Julian Jackson describes the book as brilliant and beautifully written. Uh, Malika Rahal, among other things, she describes the book as a must read for anyone interested in learning about the war waged by Algerians against France for decolonization. Um, so now I'm going to pass over to, to Natalia and I'm just going to give you a very brief, uh, very brief bio. 
Uh, Natalia Vince is a historian of modern and contemporary Algeria and France and reader in North African and French studies at the University of Portsmouth. She's interested in and focuses on oral history, decolonization, gender studies and state and nation building in Algeria and France, but also more broadly in, in Europe and Africa, which I think provides that additional context to, to, to Natalia's uh, work and, and uh, um, scholarship. Her works include our Fighting Sisters, Nation, Memory and Gender in Algeria, 1954 to 2012, Manchester United Press, Manchester United, Manchester University Press. That was a Freudian slip, I apologize. Yeah, I am a United school. The Algerian War, the Algerian Revolution, and the ongoing documentary, documentary project, Generation Independence of People's History. I now pass over to Natalia to take us through the book of 15, 20 minutes. And I'd also like, uh, like you to give me a grade out of 10 for my sales skills on your book. Natalia, over to you. Fantastic. Thank you, Adele. Definitely 10 out of 10. Um, thank you very much for that generous introduction. Um, and thank you uh, to the Society of Algerian Studies and the Middle East Centre for hosting this event. I'm really pleased to, to be with you at lunchtime or whatever time it is um, where you're joining us. Um, so I was so pleased um, that Adil actually said when I first saw the title of this book, I thought, why do we need another book about the revolution? Why do we need another book about the Algerian war? Because um, if, if you're familiar with my previous work, that, that is kind of exactly the, the position um, that, that I, I, I myself would have had, that I think there's um, far too many uh, works about you know, colonization, about the war of independence, and uh, not enough works um, about the post-independence period. And actually, um, all of my research has, has really been about you know, post-independence history. Um, so why did I decide to, to write this book? Uh, well, it's a book that is, is primarily sort of aimed at students and researchers. Um, so I'm not claiming you know, that I've gone and found um, you know, this amazing uh, sort of new archive um, or the, you know, uh, a, a new set of sources that, that I use in order to, you know, make huge brand new revelations that no one's ever heard of before about that anti-colonial struggle. Um, but what I was seeking to do was bring together a huge historiography um, that just continues to grow in a way that is, you know, quite short and accessible um, for both students um, and researchers. Um, so one of the key things that I was seeking to do is to reflect on historiography. Um, that is to say why this history has been written in the way that it has. Um, and that is reflected in the title. Um, it has, if you like, got two titles. It's called The Algerian War, The Algerian Revolution. Um, the Algerian War um, is the, the term generally used to describe the anti-colonial struggle between 1954 and 62 in France. Um, many of you will know that actually that term was only sort of officially used uh, from 1999 onwards. Prior to that, it was, you know, sort of events uh, in North Africa. Uh, whereas the Algerian Revolution, the revolution is the term sort of most commonly used in Algeria. And there's a bit of a debate amongst historians about whether that you know there should be one common term and some historians have proposed that actually you know the most consensual term uh, should be the Algerian war of independence um, and of course entangled in this are all kinds of, of questions about sort of you know perspective and, and the nature of the conflict and how we're telling this story was it a revolution um, or, or, or is that not the right term? Um, and uh, was it a war of liberation or was you know, liberation only applied to actually a small group of people and the revolution was betrayed? So these are all really, really sort of political arguments. When we talk about Algerian war, that really reflects a very French perspective as well in the same way that the Americans talk about the Vietnam War, that's not the term people in Vietnam use. Uh, so, you know, that, talked about more in, in you know the struggle against American imperial aggression um, so rather than trying to find you know one term that was going to please everybody what I was seeking to do and that's what I tried to do throughout the book is think about the multiplication of these perspectives that this conflict is seen in very different ways and we don't need to necessarily find one agreed way of understanding the conflict but rather we need to understand and unpick why this conflict is seen in these in these ways decode if you like why is it that 
so much attention has been paid to certain aspects of the conflict and not to others. Why is it that certain topics have become so controversial? And that really necessitates exploring the ways in which sort of the debates about the past are enmeshed in debates about the present. And actually arguing uh, about the war is more often than not a way of sort of making arguments, uh, making political arguments um, about the present, both in Algeria and in France. So the book actually covers quite a long period. It starts at the start of the First World War. It starts in 1914 uh, and it goes up to, to 2020. So really sort of situating the war, but also situating the historiography of the war within that longer period. The other thing that I wanted to do in the book was move away some, from sort of, you know, big dates, big names, yeah? If you want a list of important dates on the Algerian war, the Algerian revolution, let's face it, you can just go and have a look on Wikipedia. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't really need, you know, sort of those overview works that take the big names, the big dates. Um, what we do need to do perhaps more of is think about what kinds of history we're producing when we focus on the big names and the big dates, which tends to be the history of, you know, important men, and um, what kinds of history maybe sort of we're not listening to um, and we're not taking into account uh, when we're very much focused on the big dates and the big names, which tends to be, you know, women's history, uh, the history of sort of the wider Algerian population, the history of rural populations, and so on and so forth. So what I wanted to do uh, was bring alongside, you know, sort of the pronouncements of, of de Gaulle, uh, the declarations of the FLN, alongside the story, the stories, if you like, of some of the ordinary people who participated in the war. So rural women who provided logistical support to uh, the FLN, um, or indeed um, uh, soldiers from West Africa who were recruited into the French army uh, to go and fight uh, against the FLN. Um, and to put those stories alongside each other um, and, and to try and see the war sort of from different vantage points, sort of from different perspectives. So, you know, we would all say that this is a conflict that started on the 1st of November, 1954. But, you know, a number of years ago now, uh, when I was in a, a village uh, speaking to, to Furuja Merush, um, she told me that actually the, the war started um, during Ramadan um, when the cork factory burnt down. And, you know, then I had to go and have a look at when, when Ramadan was um, and that could possibly correlate to that date. She was actually telling me that the war started, you know, in spring 1955, because that's when the war came to her village. So I wanted to put these stories alongside each other. And I also really wanted to think about the relationship between sort of structure and agency um, and emphasize that, you know, none of these political actors are acting in a vacuum. Um, and yes, they do have a lot more agency if you're de Gaulle than if you're a rural woman in Algeria, but de Gaulle isn't acting in a vacuum either. Yeah, so when we take sort of the big important men, big dates approach, there's a tendency to suggest that they're just, you know, sort of making a set of decisions in relation to each other and that they're not constrained by a wider context. Um, so I wanted to bring in, you know, that even de Gaulle, um, you know, he has to take into account, you know, the international context. He has to take into account domestic public opinion. He has to take into account the effectiveness of the propaganda campaign that the FLN is leading against him. So explore the way in which a whole range of different people experience this conflict and the conditions of their decision making. And this idea of thinking about when people make different decisions and why they make those decisions, I think is also really important when we're thinking about the history uh, of the Algerian sort of nationalist movement. So if you're sort of familiar with this, you'll know sort of, you know, the, the, the classic description is that, you know, say, um, going back into the 1920s and 1930s, that it is Masali Hajj's Iana and the PPA, which is, you know, sort of the only party um, explicitly demanding independence in this period. You have the Ulema, who were about, you know, cultural revival, um, Algerian identity. Um, you have Ferhat Abbas, who's often described as an assimilationist, um, more political rights 
through greater assimilation. Uh, and then you have, say, the Algerian Communist Party, dominated by Europeans um, against colonial injustice, but not necessarily against the colonial system. And then sort of all of these are kind of put into a family tree um, and, and, you know, sort of the arrive at the FLN at the end, which is the improvement um, of, of, uh, of all of these things, sort of, you know, the ultimate sort of manifestation of the language um, and, and the, the form and the strategies that you should use to fight an independent struggle. But what I really wanted to put a lot of emphasis on was on context. So why is it in certain moments in history, different political actors take the decision they do? How are they weighing up uh, the colonial expression, um, the colonial, um, the colonial uh, repression uh, that they're going to, um, that they're going to uh, experience um, how are they um, how are they um, sort of thinking about what are going to be the most effective languages um, to uh, uh, to appeal to different audiences that potentially have leverage um, with um, the uh, in, in terms of shaping uh, the sort of the in, in terms of achieving more rights and things like that um, so sort of what I'm getting at with that is this idea that you know just because someone at one point in history is willing to seek sort of a political solution and to negotiate and to seek concessions from the colonial state that doesn't necessarily make that person an assimilationist but some of these things need to be understood as tactics that are shaped sort of by the context of the time so that relationship between sort of agency between structure uh, between strategy um, and between sort of overall sort of motivation is really, really important. And then the final thing that I wanted to do in the book um, was that I wanted to move away from the uh, conflation of uh, Algerian and French history. Now, this might sound a little bit strange. I've written a book um, about the uh, Algerian uh, War of Independence, which is, you know, very much, you know, Franco-Algerian conflict in many ways, although it is more complicated than that. Um, but I particularly wanted to move away from the way in which um, it is seen only as a Franco-Algerian conflict. I wanted to situate it within a broader moment of decolonization. Um, I wanted to think about actually, you know, what kind of Franco-French and Algero-Algerian conflicts are taking on, are taking place um, at the same time. Um, and I also wanted to critique this idea. Um, and uh, Adel already mentioned the story report, we can come back to that in the discussion and the questions, but critique this idea that sort of, you know, since 1962, Algeria and France uh, have been engaged in sort of, you know, this huge memory war um, over, over the conflict, over colonialism more broadly, and that the war is this sort of festering wound in uh, Franco-Algerian relations. Um, and that actually it's only by sort of, you know, talking about the past and coming to terms with the past, you might be familiar with this language, um, that, um, that, that basically, you know, French and Algerian society can sort of move forward together. Um, and I've got a number of sort of criticisms of this, this quite popular reading. Um, so firstly, I think there's a way in which um, it completely ignores all of Algeria's post-independence history since 1962. So sort of, you know, framing Algeria as sort of living in the permanent legacy of colonialism and in the permanent legacy of the war of decolonization um, means that far too little interest has been paid to the very rich and diverse history of Algeria after 1962 and the many different contexts in which uh, you know Algerian history took place it's not just a Franco-Algerian sort of you know face off uh, we need to sort of situate Algeria both before and after independence in sort of, you know, pan-Arab con context, pan-African context, uh, border Mediterranean context, the broader context of third worldism, and so on and so forth. And the other issue that I have with sort of the framing um, of the 
of sort of the legacies of the war as sort of this shared Franco-Algerian traumatic experience is it ignores the ways in which um, debates about memory play out in very different ways in the French and the Algerian contexts, um, because what is at stake is different in each of those contexts. So if we look, for example, at what are sort of the big sort of controversial topics um, in France, um, they tend to be things uh, around settlers uh, and around sort of, you know, um, nostalgia for empire, treatment of settlers in 1962. Uh, they tend to be around the question of Harki, so, you know, Algerians who, who fought in the French army or who were considered to be pro-French, that term has expanded, and they treatment in France after 1962, uh, they tend to be questions about the use of torture by the French army. Yeah, these, these are things that, that, that cause debate, that prompt a newspaper articles, um, that are the subject of documentaries. The other very obvious example in the French context is the 17th of October 1961 as well, where a peaceful uh, pro-independence demonstration was brutally repressed by the Parisian police. Um, but these things are, do not have the same echo on the other side of the Mediterranean. Um, so in Algeria, what, what are the big things that the people have debates about? They have debates about who were the true and who were the false uh, veterans. Um, they have debates about whether the role of women um, in the war has been sort of fully recognized. There's debates about regionalism and sort of the relative sort of regional contribution um, of different parts um, of, uh, of, of the uh, anti-colonial movement um, to, to the struggle overall. Um, and what we can see is the reason that these things are debates is because they're a way of talking about issues in the present that perhaps it's a bit more difficult to talk about in other terms. So why is it that we're still having debates about, you know, Haraki and, and, and settlers, Pienois in France, it's because this is a way of talking about the way in which citizenship is racialized in contemporary France. The fact that um, in 1962, um, people of European origin are seen as repatriates, um, but those Alger Algerians who, who are Haraki and sort of, you know, seek to leave Algiers to go to France, first of all, France doesn't want them, but also they're labeled as Muslim refugees, even though legally, uh, they are French citizens. Yeah, so this is this is a really important contemporary debate um, about race in France that is possible to have through the language of talking about the past. Same thing goes for the 17th of October 1961. Really relatively little echo of that discussion or knowledge of it perhaps even uh, beyond sort of you know students and specialists in Algeria because it's an event that happens in France and it's connected to the Fédération de France uh, of the FLN which is marginalized in the post-independence context but you know this is an example which enables um, people uh, you know in France to talk about police brutality institutional racism violence yeah it's it's a way of talking about things that it can be difficult to talk about um, using a more explicit language of race because we know that that language is in many ways sort of delegitimized in the French political context. In the Algerian context, why is it that debates about women's rights are often, often take place through talking about the role of women in the war? It's because this is a way to talk about a topic um, which, you know, for some Algerian feminists very quickly, they're going to be labeled sort of, you know, women who have lost all sense of their sort of personality and have become westernized. But if you can hold up the example of, you know, the woman who, who fought in the anti-colonial struggle, then that is actually really useful political uh, ammunition for you. Um, if we're talking about true and false mujahideen, we're really talking about political power and legitimacy and so on and so forth. So one of the things that I wanted to do in that final chapter, the one on legacies that, that Adele is, is talking about, is really understand that these debates, yes, they are Franco-Algerian debates in some ways, but they're also Franco-French and Algero-Algerian debates. And 
there is a certain sort of Franco-centricism in a lot of the literature, which ignores that by framing everything under, you know, sort of the banner of memory and trauma. So I really sort of wanted to unpick sort of the political and social and economic, to a certain extent, context in which these um, debates emerge. But I will stop there. Thank you so much, Natalia, for covering uh, what was almost, what was it, 106 years in 15, 20 minutes. Uh, Natalia's book covers the, the, the period 1914 to, to 2020. Uh, thank you so much, Natalia. That was, uh, that was fantastic. Uh, a couple of smaller uh, mini editions use the word harki. A lot of Algerians would use the word traitor as a, as a, um, as a translation of sorts. Um, we also had somebody in the chat who, uh, along with your segmentation around um, male, female, and regional, regionalism, also the point on those that are fighting uh, l'interior, l'exterior, which is uh, for those who are stationed in Tunisia, for example, and beyond, uh, Mustafa Koriba makes that, uh, that, that uh, valid and uh, important point. Before I come back uh, to, to Natalia, just like, ask a couple of questions. For those that have just uh, joined or joined a little bit late, um, we have 20% off Natalia's book today. Uh, you have a code, discount code in the chat. And um, with the compliments from the Society of Algerian Studies, we'll actually be offering a complimentary copy because we're generous like that. Um, and uh, it, the, the, the fastest person to uh, respond to the following question, we may get nobody who is able to answer. I, it, it may be an easy question, it may not. And it's a question we dreamt up last night this morning. The question is, what is the common denominator that brings together the Algerian revolution and independence, the Algerian war, the Algerian revolution and independence uh, and the United Kingdom and is anchored around today's date? Common denominator between Algerian revolution and independence, the United Kingdom and today's date. Um, please do, uh, with your answers in the chat or Q&A, we can accept both. Uh, please uh, share your name and affiliation. So the winner will be announced at the end and we can send over a copy. But back to you, Natalia. Um, so I just wanted to come back to um, a point, um, obviously limits of time, but just a question on, on methodology, really. It'd be, be great to see if you could say a little bit about your methodological approach, the limitations of doing uh, research on Algeria, given all of these various complexities and uh, segmentations. And more specifically, I know you've done a lot of oral history. So it'd be interesting to hear if you could say anything um, and, and bring in a gender dimension as well. What were the sort of, or have there been taboos uh, in your discussions which have been off limits? Uh, what have been issues around access? You know, for us economists and poll side people who discuss data poverty when it comes to Algeria. Uh, and, and more specifically, have there been challenges or opportunities to you as, as far as I can see, you're a Caucasian outsider. Um, what does that bring in terms of uh, you know identity and that identity research nexus? I'd be interested to hear you know any thoughts on on on, on that uh, in the first instance before we go to uh, start taking in questions from our audience. Natalia, over to you. Um, yeah, thank you. Great question. Um, I think sort of the first thing that I would say is that it is often said that you know um, it's not possible to particularly in relation to the sort of the post-independence to do the history of post-independence uh, Algeria because the archives uh, you know, are not available. And I would point to a, a brilliant um, book review um, by a, a young scholar um, called Safiya Rezki, who, who actually wrote a book about the Algerian army um, during and after um, the, the revolution. Um, and you can imagine of all the topics that you think might be really difficult to do, writing a book about the Algerian army, one might expect that that would be pretty difficult. And she, you know, she, she it's a fantastic book. She's got, you know, loads of interviews, things like that. Um, so in this book review, it's a book review of sort of a, a, a book recently published in France, which is a history of Algeria after independence. And it basically says it's impossible to do this history because the archives aren't open. And, and yeah, I mean, you're not going to get access really to the Algerian National Archives for the post-independence period. And even now it's much more difficult than say 10 years ago um, to, to, get, to get in there for, for you know, the, the colonial period or the pre-colonial period. But I think what that pushes us to do is to, to think, you know, what do we mean when we talk about an archive? Um, 
and I'm not diminishing the importance of having archives. And, you know, the French have really shut down access to their archives um, as well recently, much more difficult to get into them than when I was doing my PhD. But actually an archive is so much more than sort of institutional documents. Um, it can be oral history interviews. Um, it can be, um, it can be, uh, you know, um, objects that people keep. Um, it can be, you know, looking at the geography um, of, say, a recruitment camp or things like that. So I think we need to have a much broader sort of understanding of what our sources are, um, be a lot more creative um, about it. Um, and I think also, you know, this idea of taboos, um, I can't tell you the number of times in an interview someone said to me, now, now, you mustn't write this down or you mustn't record this because, you know, this is a bit sensitive and told me like the most banal thing that literally everybody says. So it's interesting to think uh, about sort of how taboos function in a society and how we N might... Natalia, if, if I could just yeah. push you on that. But I'll give an example. Um, mm. uh, oral histories around, um, you know, women that suffered, say, sexual violence mm. or, um, you know, people who are happy to talk about murder or whatever it may have been, bomb networks. Are these things that people are happy and proud to talk about or generally, um, you know, concealment is, uh, uh, is the prevailing? What? Yeah, what I mean, sort of, I've... I've so you can take taboos in that way. So things that are sort of, you know, socially or morally taboo. Um, but I think there is also sort of a discourse around sort of, you know, political taboos, you know, who is yep. a true veteran, who's a traitor. Absolutely. And that's always presented as, you know, you mustn't say this, but I know they're X. And then they say something that everybody says. So there's a language in which we, we must never be able to talk about this and we can't talk about it, which is a way in and of itself of talking about something um, so in relation to sort of you know social taboos um, I think you know in in my sort of initial sort of oral history project that was about women's participation in the war but especially what they did afterwards I didn't specifically ask them questions about sort of rape and sexual violence which they might have experienced um, on the basis that I didn't have anything particularly interesting or important to bring to that discussion. Other historians had already worked on it. Why am I going to go and ask someone to bring up something that, you know, potentially sort of painful and traumatic unnecessarily? So I think, you know, the first rule of oral history is you do no harm, right? You, you don't, if you can get the information somewhere else, you don't necessarily ask the question. But women did bring up sort of the topic themselves. Um, and it was quite striking that they did it in, in sort of very sort of different ways. So one of the women that I interviewed was Louisa Ihilariz, who is, you know, is very well known because um, in 2000, she, you know, she, she was the person that really triggered the whole torture debate sort of going again um, in, 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 in France by, you know, revealing her rape and torture in the hands of the French army. And she did really sort of explicitly talk about this. Um, and one of the things that she said she found very difficult was that other women sort of resented her for talking about it. Um, but they didn't necessarily resent her for talking about it because she broke a social taboo. It was also linked up with the fact that she became very well known because of that. Um, and that sort of broke with another perhaps even stronger taboo, which is the idea of one sole hero, the people. Um, she sort of put herself out there, um, even though, you know, she didn't put herself out there, but that is how it was perceived to be and sort of attracted attention to herself in a way that was con considered to be, you know, unbecoming of sort of revolutionary values. But women do talk about the sexual violence they experience. They do it in ways that are sometimes quite unexpected, um, not necessarily when they're talking about rape, but when they're talking about, sexual humiliations, being undressed, things like that. Sometimes those are told as sort of quite funny stories. They're humorous anecdotes for sort of a female audience, which is a way of making them sort of safe um, as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, shall I answer your question about being an outsider? In, as quick as you can. Um, I will answer it very briefly then. Uh, I think uh, it has its sort of advantages and, and disadvantages. So obviously, you know, your positionality is really important because it shapes, you know, how people sort of respond to and interact with you. Um, 
so uh, I think, you know, um, also bringing to the fact that age is quite important. So I was much, much younger than a lot of people that were interviewing. So they were often, you know, they were very sort of maternalistic, maternalistic and sort of, you know, sort of explaining their stories um, to me. Um, and I also have have an Algerian connection through my husband and I lived in Bujbaraj. So, so um, I wasn't quite an outsider either. And that often piqued people's curiosity as well, because if you're if you're a foreigner, you don't necessarily live in Bujbaraj either. Very specific and and notable in 2019. Sorry, Natalia, you, have you? Oh, I finished. You told oh. me to be brief. Ah, yeah, very good. I, I didn't expect that brief for an academic. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, no so, so just two very, very brief questions and brief uh, answers from, from your side. And we'll go to, to, to questions and they're coming in. I see people are, um, see, we have a, a William Monk who's coming very close to answering the question, but is still a little bit off, I'm afraid. Um, but the, the question I have for you, Natalia, is if you could say a little bit about um, how are non-French academics like yourself and historians to use this word, maybe UK, US in the Anglosphere, playing, I don't know if this is the right word, but a balancing role or addressing some of the, if you call, if you like, internal predispositions or path dependencies that have been inherent in French historiography when it comes to the Algerian war, the Algerian revolution. Um, if you could say a little bit about that, and then also just a, a brief touch on, on the role of fictional sources and here, whether it's the Battle of Algiers or, um, you know, social media, uh, you know, nowadays with its sort of uh, you know, plethora, and I think I, I googled. I googled. Um, I think it was yesterday or the day before. I, I wrote this down, but yeah, I was, I was. I was sort of looking at how many, how many million, uh, how many million um, sources come up when you Google um, the various uh, uh, names of the war, and I forgot which one won. Um, I, I can't find it. I wrote it down anyway, but it's, it goes into the million. Oh, that's it. Algeria War for Independence, 2.3 million. Algerian War is the winner with 10.7 million. Uh, Guerre d'Algerie is 4.8 million or pacification 400,000. So uh, interesting uh, in of its own right. But yeah, any, any um, comments on, on those two would be great. Um, yes, I mean, the fictional representations are, are really, really important in sort of shaping popular perceptions. And of course, you know, historians' perceptions are, are also part of popular perceptions. Let's not pretend that we're, you know, some group of people apart that, that have this amazing ability to sort of be objective. Um, so it's really striking that when we think about a film like The Battle of Algiers, so the representation of women's roles in planting bombs um, in that film is so, so powerful. You can see it reflected in, you know, so much academic work. Um, you can see it in sometimes in the way some women talk about their role in the bomb network because it sounds very much like they're describing sometimes a scene from the Battle of Algiers. Now that could be because the film is really very accurate, could also be because they've watched the film, it's on TV a lot in Algeria. Um, and I think what's really important to underline there is really the representation of the role of women in the in the film um, and the way in which you know um, veiling is and unveiling is represented in that it is sort of a filmic representation of Franz Fanon's Algeria Unveiled, written during the conflict, big supporter um, of the anti-colonial struggle, um, and that is a very political text um, written, you know, by a man from from Martinique. And it, it creates, you, you, you so commonly hear people say, oh yeah, women unveiled to go and plant bombs. And you're like, well, no, a lot of the women in the bomb network, they were already unveiled. Um, but the fictional representations have really, really sort of powerfully um, shaped um, how, how we understand uh, the conflict, which, you know, is, is absolutely sort of normal. Um, you know, plenty of British people, their, their vision, you know, of the Second World War is the great escape. Um, but it's about understanding sort of the interplay between those two things. And there still is a tendency, I think, to, to take fiction and film about Algeria. And that goes for, you know, all of its post-independence history as some kind of ethnographical study, um, rather than understanding it as, you know, a, a piece of fiction, which has its own sort of conditions of, of, of production as well. Um, so to answer your question, I think I've touched on it a little bit about, you know, les anglo-saxons, um, they not any more sort of, you know, biased or objective than, you know, French or Algerian historians, um, but often they're presented as if they are. Um, so it's quite interesting 
in some of the more politicized debates that, you know, Algerian historians will say, even this American historian says, uh, you know, and vice versa in the French context. It's quite interesting, I think, in the French context, um, particularly amongst older generations, there's been less interest in engaging in some of the English language historiography than there has in Algeria. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, what some, uh, you know, American or British or, or scholars of other nationalities have brought, they've, you know, really put the focus on the, the FLN's international campaigning, the significance of, of the international uh, context. Um, and they've done often studies that are very, very sort of transnational. Um, and that's fantastic. Um, but I think, you know, it's sort of very fashionable, sort of the transnational now. And I think what is sometimes lost with that is acknowledgement and a bit of respect for the really local study. Um, you know, everyone's, you know, wants to be hopping about between, you know, archives in X, Y and Z country. But that really is only available to a very small number of scholars with access to sort of funding and visas. Whereas some of the most, you know, amazing work on the wall is really, really local studies in which you're understanding the complexity of how the conflict has played out. And that's being done by, you know, Algerian scholars of, of all ages, you know, PhD students are doing it now and they're doing it in local languages as well. You know, they're doing it in Tamazir, they're doing it in Arabic. And I think sometimes, you know, this sort of big transnational trend sometimes forgets the importance of connecting that to the local. Absolutely, thank you so much, Natalia. We now go to our, um, our, our questions from the audience and, and I, I must announce that I will be announcing uh, the winner or winners of uh, the complimentary copy. We did get the correct answer answers. Um, and the first question, Natalia, we touched upon it earlier and I think we've been prompted uh, full circle. Uh, Farida asks, what are your views on the Stora report? For those that are not familiar, Benjamin Stora is a, an Algerian born, Constantine born uh, a Jewish historian uh, based in France, uh, written some, for I think four or five decades on, on Algeria and was commissioned or tasked with uh, uh, writing a report delivered to the president earlier this year, I think it was January, to President Macron, looking at the um, uh, French experience or colonial uh, history or role in in uh, in Algeria um, and I won't I won't say any more because we can come back to it but did, did you want to comment on what you you know what your thoughts are on that and it goes back to your point on the past present and revolution as proxy yeah absolutely thank you for that question Farida um, so I mean, Benjamin Stora's report, it's, it's a commission. Uh, Macron, he, he, he asked for this, you know, report to be produced and Benjamin Stora did it. And for me, you know, even though it was a report that was submitted earlier this year, it sort of reproduces a lot of the analyses that the Benjamin Stora was al already had in, in a book that he published in 1991 called Gangrene and Forgetting La Bronca et and this, this is sort of this, this very sort of psychology, if you like, influenced framework um, about uh, Franco-Algerian relations um, being, you know, the, the product um, or being sort of, you know, poisoned uh, by failing to sort of to confront the past. And, you know, this is, this is not a language that is specific to talking about the Franco-Algerian relationship. It's not specific to talking about colonial relationship. Indeed, in many ways, it's sort of, it's borrowed from the language of sort of, you know, Holocaust studies, the idea of needing to come to terms with the past. Um, and this is a really, really important book. It's never been translated into English, which is really interesting. I don't know why that is. Um, and either other scholars, they really go with it and they sort of apply this analysis to, you know, everything that they do, or they really react against it. And I would say I'm probably in the camp of, you know, those who react against it and think, well, actually, how useful is this psychologizing language? To what extent do the memory of nations function in the same way as individual memories? You know, memories don't just sort of, you know, research like that in the nation's consciousness. They have to be consciously activated for political reasons. So I think- So, so Natalia, Natal yeah. specifically on, on the report, if mm. you like the headline for the sort of non-Algerian observer, is the fact that uh, there was no recommendation of blanket apology, right? Why, why do you think that is? And why not to bring you to 
uh, Political Science 2021, but why did Macron on the, um, you know, when he was running for the presidency or, or walking for the presidency, why did he um, describe Algeria, the, the experience as crime against humanity? But when he came into the hot seat, he's been, of course, shifting uh, 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 more and more to the right, given uh, who is on the right of him and that whole uh, trajectory for next year. What, 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 you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, when I think of Macron, like he's a bit, in terms of his sort of memory politics, it's like pick and mix. Um, you know, you go to the cinema and you think, oh, I'm going to pick, you know, uh, these jelly babies and that will please, you know, that group of people if I make a statement on this aspect of memory. And, you know, then I'm going to, you know, uh, pick uh, what are those they call those jazzies, those chocolate sweets with the sprinkles on, and they'll, uh, you know, very nice, please, actually. they are nice, yeah, they're one of my favorites. And they'll, you know, please this group here. And that's that's why you can have a situation in which he's both, you know, acknowledging the role of the French state uh, in the murder of Maurice Ordain, meeting, you know, with the family of Ali Boumengel, and at the same time rehabilitating Pétain. Yeah, so all of these, these things, you know, sort of coexist because. He, he is using memory as a way of positioning himself as sort of a centrist, although, as you say, you know, increasingly sort of becoming sort of more right wing. And I think sort of the key thing is, is that we're just not talking about memory and we're not talking, well, we are talking about memory, we're not talking about history at all. This is a way of positioning himself within the French political political. French political landscape, when we know that certain positions on the colonial past mark you out as belonging to a certain political party. So the historical dimension to all of this is really very, very secondary. And also um, there's this idea that, you know, talking about the Algerian war and apologizing or sort of apologizing, or almost apologizing, is popular politics uh, with um, you know people who are of you know North African descent in France, who are Franco-Algerian, or you know perhaps even Franco-Tunisian or Franco-Moroccan, um, and I think that's an interesting assumption that has never never really been tested. And I would love some you know social scientists to, to actually to actually look at that. You know, if, if you are Franco-Algerian. Uh, you know, when, when you vote for, for Francois Hollande, is it because he threw a rose into the Seine um, on the 17th uh, of October? Um, so I think there's an assumption that this kind of politics appeals to a certain constituency that I don't think has ever really been sort of tested in this sort of a serious study. And I think there's an interesting parallel to draw there with the ways in which debates about the colonial past play out in Britain. There is a very clear right wing position on the colonial past all saying, you know, all this apologizing, it's self-flagellation, it's people who are not proud to be British. And there's a very clear left wing position. We need to come to terms with the past. This is terrible. It would help fix racism. And actually, neither of those propositions have ever been properly tested. If you are critical of your past, does it mean that, you know, you hate the nation? Equally, if you talk about the past and have a more honest discussion about it, does that actually fix problems of, you know, institutional racism, inequality, and so on and so forth. So I think across the political spectrum, um, in France and in Britain and other countries, there's a way in which talking about the past and uh, these colonial debates is quite cheap politics, because fundamentally, it doesn't demand huge investment or money, or huge questioning of sort of the structures of society. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, retail politics maybe. But in fact, um, one of my favorite comedians from across the pond now uh, departed, used to say uh, symbols are for the symbol minded. Um, but uh, that's, uh, that's something which will continue on. And we've had uh, in recent years, the discourse around statues, etc. Um, to come to another question from uh, the audience, uh, we have Metin Yuxel who asks, uh, what do you think about the reception of the Algerian revolution and its symbol symbols leaders like Jamila and Jamila in, in other parts of the colonized world. And um, if you could link it to another question we have um, from, from John, which looks at this very interesting question, um, and, and I find very interesting myself, is um, how the, the, you know, what the role of the Algerian revolution um, uh, 
what are the legacies? What are the legacies? I'm trying to rephrase it. What are the legacies of the Algerian Revolution vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Algerian uh, normalization or complete anti-Israeli stance compared to other um, uh, neighboring countries and countries in a broader region? Of course, here referring to UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan's uh, normalization over the last year. Um, any comments on that? Most welcome, Natalia. Over to you. Yeah, thank you for that question, uh, Metin, and also for your additional question, Adel. Um, I mean, you know, people like Jamila uh, Buhirid are, were international icons at the time. You know, they're internationally sort of famous um, across the world and particularly uh, in the colonized world or the recently sort of decolonized world. So, you know, Jamila Buhirid, um, as I'm sure nearly all of you here will know, uh, she was a member of um, the Algiers Bomb Network. Um, she is captured by the French army, tortured, put on trial and condemned to death. Uh, alongside another Jamila who is Jamila Bouazar and there's sort of a big international campaign um, to uh, basically stop that penalty being carried out, which is successful. Um, Yusuf Shaheen in Egypt, um, I saw Egypt came up in the question as well, he makes a film about her. Um, and after independence as well, she, she does briefly at least sort of travel the world as sort of a representative of Algeria. She goes sort of across the Middle East, raising funds for, for orphans. She travels to, to China, she meets Mao, all that kind of thing. So she's a really powerful, powerful symbol. And I think I saw a survey a few years ago, she's still one of the most recognizable uh, women uh, in, in the Arab world. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, the beauty of any symbol um, is that it can mean lots of things to, to lots of different people. And so the, these women who participated in the anti-colonial struggle, um, they, they mean all kinds of different things to all kinds of different people. They, they, they're, 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 symbol can be appropriated for all different kinds of, of reasons and I think that can be very hard for those women themselves you know their identity doesn't really belong to them um, anymore um, so um, I was talking to uh, Jamal Bupasha a number of years ago now and she again was a woman who became very famous um, uh, because of her torture and rape at the hands of the French army, it became sort of an international cause célèbre. She, Picasso painted her portrait. Picasso, as we know, not, you know, the most fantastic person on his views of women, but anyway. Um, and uh, she describes how this portrait came to the Algiers Fine Arts Museums many years later, and she was sort of walking around, and someone came up to her and said, oh, is that the portrait of Jamila Bupasha? And she said, no, that's the, the image of the Algerian woman in the struggle. And so sort of almost disassociating herself from of her symbol and her image and so on and so forth. Mm. But yeah, these women are, you know, sort of, you know, famous uh, around, uh, around the world, really, uh, particularly, I think, in the Arab world um, up until today and continue, their imagery continues to be sort of used and symbolized in sort of different ways. Um, and Algeria's idea of itself um, as a third world leader, obviously far less pronounced, you know, now in 2021 uh, than it was in, in 1962. Um, but still, I mean, it's absolutely inimaginable that, that Algeria would ever uh, normalize relationships with Israel. And I think um, the idea of sort of solidarity between sort of Algerian and Palestinian people is, is one which, you know, is a profound part of the political identity of Algeria, along with the war of independence. Um, and I know some, you know, if we think about some writers who sort of, you know, critiqued that position, you know, Kamal Daoud and Bouelim Sonsal, and we can see how that plays out. Um, uh, and I think one of the things that, um, is, is particularly uh, sort of interesting uh, to think about um, in terms of sort of, you know, this, this question um, of, of solidarity um, is to a certain extent the limits of it in practical terms. So one of the projects that I'm also working on is called uh, Generation Independence and it's about the first uh, generation of, you know, Algerians who didn't not necessarily participate in the war, they were a bit too young, but they're sort of the state builders in the 60s and 70s. And one of the videos, I'll put it in the chat if anyone's interested, but it's the first Algerian aeronautical engineer and he ends up running 
the, the Algiers airport um, in, in sort of the late 1960s, early 70s. And of course, the big issue they have then is plane hijackings. Um, uh, you know, Algiers is the mecca of revolution. If you want to hijack a plane, if you're the Black, Black Panthers, if you're the PLO, you, you take that plane to Algiers. And it starts to become a bit of a problem for the Algerian authorities, um, you know, diplomatically, logistically, that kind of thing. So if any of you are interested, it's a short 20 minute video um, with, you know, it's it sort of, it describes a sort of, you know, the hostage taking sort of situation and how, on the, from the perspective of, you know, this man who, who was in charge of the airport, how they're trying to manage it. And at one point, um, Khaled Ahmed, who, you know, is, is, is a very sort of important figure um, in this period, he sort of, he, he's had enough and he just shouts, just get rid of all these people with their planes and their hostages. We don't want them anymore. And he says, Algeria is a normal country. L'Algérie, c'est un pays normal. We're no longer a revolutionary country, we're a normal country. And I think that that, idea of of when you shift from being revolutionary to when you become normal is is an interesting sort of absolutely. tension to explore absolutely i i I'd push back slightly on just one thing i'd also argue that some of those uh, hijackings and through to um uh, iran i think gave algeria that sort of uh, mediation credit within its foreign policy uh, capital um and uh, yeah, uh, and, and on the point on Palestine, I think, you know, whether it was in 2019, 2020, you saw Palestinian flags were the de facto flag after the Algerian, Palestine, Shohada, you'd hear being shouted, uh, Palestine uh, martyrs, you'd be here, you'd, you'd hear being called by, by, by the masses. Uh, and also, I think polling has shown that the Algerians have been the most staunch, um, uh, staunch, most staunch, uh, most staunchly against um, any normalization with, uh, with, with Israel. Um, we have a couple of minutes, and if it's okay with everybody, I'm going to go a couple of minutes over. Um, Natalia, could you very quickly, if you can, um, we had a question from um, our colleague uh, Yusuf Bishay, who asked about the non-alignment movement, notably Egypt. How is it viewed in Algerian and French post-war narratives? Of course, then Billah Nasser uh, legacies and you know, initially Egyptian socialism, and then of course, Yugoslav influence. Um, if you could say anything on how that plays out. Um, and then and then finally, um, if you could just in one minute, uh, just link 62, 54 to 62 to 2019, and how many, many people who were out in the streets from uh, Anneba to, to Wahran and, and via Algiers were uh, utilizing some of the um, uh, French revolutionary portraits uh, uh, for Shara in the streets. And, and why? Brilliant. And you want me to do that really briefly? <laughs> two, two, three minutes. Okay. Fine. Easy. Thank you very much, Yusuf, for, uh, for your question. Um, it's really interesting that you say sort of, you know, post-war narratives, because I think what is what I found really striking in the, in the historiography is, is how both French historiography of the war and Algerian historiography of the war nationalise it. And to a large extent, and of course that depends on who's writing the book, right? Um, they, they make it a Franco-Algerian war on, on both sides of the Mediterranean. There's a tendency to sort of marginalize the broader international context, which when we think about the actors involved and how important the international context was at the time it is, is absolutely crazy. You know, the FLN absolutely know there's no way this war is gonna be won militarily. It has to be won politically. And those um, international uh, alliances, um, the non including you know Bandung, the non-aligned movement, the relationship with Egypt, they are all so so important. Um, and Egypt um, is is really important when we're thinking about you know the creation of the FLN, where where these people are. You know, it's a base uh, for a number of its leaders. Um, it's not always an easy relationship uh, and I feel that we're going to start talking about football again um, but certainly um, in terms of you know sort of who particularly after independence who is going to lead the non-aligned movement or you know the third worldist movement there's huge rivalry uh, uh, between Algeria and Egypt and certainly I think Egypt thinks that it's sort of you know it's the big brother to its Algerian little brother and you know Algeria is not really sort of having um, any of this um, whatsoever. There, so there's, I, a, there's a funny joke, Natalia, if I may say so. Feel free to translate uh, with your Arabic uh, credential. Um, it's, it's used all over the region, but when people say uh, 
Masr, Ummah Dunya, Egypt is mother of the world of civilizations, we say, uh, which is now we are your father. And, and not to go into the role of the Gulf, but uh, yeah, sorry for that mini footnote. Yeah, no, so, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, um, I'm not able to go into there's any sort of particular detail, but I think, you know, that joke really encapsulates the, the way in which it, it, it's brotherhood, but, you know, not all brothers are equal and who's going to be sort of the big brother and, and all that kind of thing. And I think in terms of France, they were obsessed with Egypt in 1954, 1955. They absolutely thought that the FLN, you know, was the product of NASA, was the product of Egypt. When they captured the first, um, you know, three Algerian women in the rural guerrilla, they thought that they were Egyptian women. Um, and that's mainly because they couldn't imagine that Algerian women, you know, would ever do something like, you know, jo jo join the rural guerrilla. Um, but I think one of the things that, that's really quite interesting is the way in which the presence of, of Egypt um, that was very much at the forefront of everyone's minds, you know, both politically and in the press at the time, has largely been forgotten as the war has become sort of nationalised um, in the post-independence period, either as something that we fought against the French or as something that we fought against Algerians, whereas it was never experienced like that and actually never imagined like that when we look at things like um, the FLN First November Declaration, which is really strong on internationalization, or if we look at, say, Hussein Ahmed's report that he writes for the MTLD just after the Second World War, when he looks at, you know, an anti-colonial revolutionary struggles across the world, and, and he's drawing lessons from these and about how actually this is a struggle which has to be played out on the international scale. I'm going to really briefly try and answer your next question now, Adel. Um, so yeah, 2019. Um, so you know, the symbols of the War of Independence are really, really present um, in these demonstrations. But I would say those aren't the only symbols present in the demonstration. There's lots and lots of references to more recent Algerian history. There's references to 1988. Uh, there's references to Haraga as well. So. What's quite interesting is about how these different moments of, you know, state oppression are sort of connected to each other in, you know, the banners and, you know, the slogans and things like that. Um, but yeah, absolutely sort of the, the idea that um, the, the revolutionary figures, um, either the ones who were dead and were on the posters, or the ones who were in the demonstration, such as Jamil Buhiri, and, 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 and the disappeared. Yeah, and the disappeared as well, absolutely. That the, the, the war still provides a really important political grammar uh, for talking about political legitimacy, for talking about belonging. Um, and this is a, you know, always a bad idea to finish on a provocative question. Um, but I think it raises questions about Algerian political culture in the sense of the need to always search for a savior. Um, and the idea that almost this, this, this providential man or woman is gonna take us out of this mess. And that's an interesting sort of theme sort of throughout Algerian history. Some of the iconography around the Sali Hajj very much sort of presents in, 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 in that way as well. Um, obviously, you know, not in the immediate post-independence period because he's marginalized. Um, but, but the idea that we just need one good leader um, and that, that we're gonna get out of this. And, and how do you develop a new political language as well? Um, when, you know, nearly all of the wartime generation now, they're, they're nearly all dead as well. Where does legitimacy come from? if it's not because you are a veteran, the child of a veteran, or the grandchild of a veteran, and so on and so forth. So I think those are all really interesting questions. Um, the other thing that struck me um, about the, the demonstrations um, is the reappropriation of public space. Um, and I think that's something really striking. And a lot of people made the parallel between sort of the big public demonstrations in 1962 and those from 2019 onwards, um, just huge, huge crowds of, of people in the street, particularly women in the street. And that was really noticeable in, in Bodjbaric. Like, of course, you know, women go out in the street, but the street in Bodj really belongs to the men. You sort of, you cross the street rather than hang around in it. Um, and there was a real sort of appropriation of sort of public space 
um, really noticeable by women in, in, in places across sort of Algeria. And the idea of space where somewhere you could be safe, whereas in the 1990s, you know, being out in public space is actually really something quite dangerous and to be avoided and so on and so forth. So I think there's, there's you know, historians are going to be writing this and sort of, you know, drawing all kinds of, you know, interesting parallels and, and much better analyses than mine. Um, but in terms of sort of, you know, how do we go beyond or reinvent the narrative of where political legitimacy comes from is a big question. Thank you so much, Natalia, for, for brilliant answers, brilliant insights and, and a brilliant presentation. Before I, I thank uh, all in the usual way, I'd just like to um, announce uh, the winner, but I'm going to turn it into winners because at the Society of Algeria Studies, we're very kind and we're very generous. Um, we had somebody who came very close and he gave what I describe as a half answer and somebody got it completely spot on. The answer to the question which was posed at the beginning was, what is a, the common denominator that brings together the UK, um, Algerian revolution, Algerian independence, and today, which is, yes, uh, for, us, uh, for us people who were Remainers, uh, was the 23rd of June. And uh, it's that Algeria, Saint Barthélemy, I think it was in Greenland, were the three entities or countries uh, that became, or Algeria became a country, Greenland, and Saint Barthélemy, I think Barthélemy left Guadeloupe uh, a little while back. Um, these were countries that had left uh, the EEC or later the EU. And Marianne Lanatza, I repeat, Marianne Lanatza, well done. And also William Monk, who got it half right, but uh, if, uh, I remember in maths, they used to round up from 0.5 up to one, if I remember correctly. So you're both, uh, you're both winners. And please do write to Nadine uh, Elmanasfi in the chat and we'll reach out to you to send you your complimentary copies of this wonderful book, The Algerian War, The Algerian Revolution. And uh, on that note, I'd like to thank you all, the audience, fantastic questions, thank fantastic uh, commentary and interest. I'd like to thank the LSE Middle East Center. I'd like to thank Nadine El Manasfi, society colleagues, particularly Zina Blalawin and uh, uh, William Sinton, Bill Sinton. And last but not least, of course, uh, our dear uh, speaker and the author of the book, um, which I highly recommend, um, Dr. Natalia Vince, for her wonderful insights and perspectives. I look forward to seeing you all very soon. Uh, and thanks again, Natalia. Take care, everybody. Have a great day. Enjoy the sunshine. Thank you so much.